So Romans chapter 12, let me read for us verses 1 through 8. God's word reads, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come and pray that you would open our eyes to your word, open our hearts. That we would hear, receive, be transformed by, give our allegiance to the voice of God speaking in the scriptures. Give us grace today to live as those who worship you, who serve you, who serve one another, who take your good news out to the world. Do with us what you want to do, and and we pray that you would do with us graciously. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to be human? Well, that's a rather large question, isn't it? It's going to be difficult to answer that question from all the angles in just one sermon. So perhaps a more focused question would be, what does Romans 12, our text today, have to do with genuine human existence? And if that sounds abstract, philosophical, what does that have to do with the Bible? You'll be surprised to hear Romans 12 has a lot to say about what it means to be authentically human. And let me point you to just one example to set up our approach to the passage. At the end of verse 2, Paul says, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. And the word approve is key. It made its first appearance in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, where Paul writes, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved Mind. The phrase there, think it worthwhile, that's the same as the word approve here. And when it says that God gave them over to a depraved mind, that's a negative form of the word, a disapproved mind. Well, do you remember what Romans chapter 1 was all about? That is where Paul described humanity as those 
who do not submit to God the Creator. As Genesis 6 says, there's this evil inclination in the heart of man. And we see humans repeating the mistakes of Adam and Eve. We don't want to follow God's blueprint for creation. We want to carve out our own way to be human and to live and to use God's creation. And we end up rebelling against God and his purposes. We disapprove of God. And thus God disapproves of us in that natural rebellious state. Well, Romans 12 presents the positive side of the equation. Now that we are in Christ, now that Paul has explained the gospel, how we're rescued from that rebellion, now we can be renewed and transformed into the new humanity, the renewed humanity that approves of God's will. And uses his creation and our gifts and our abilities the right way for his glory and for the good of others. We can become the humans, the creation God intends for us to become as we live under the lordship of Christ. And so for these reasons, let's look at this passage today, which describes our place in God's new humanity. And it describes it in terms of two processes. One, God is making you holy. Paul opens this passage, and we have now before us a whole new section of Romans, which begins with this admonition. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now I want to begin with the phrase, in view of God's mercy. You see, with this phrase, Paul is essentially summarizing everything he has written in Romans so far. And when we hear the word mercy, it's it's something that's easy to connect to. Even if we couldn't write out a specific definition, we understand the concept of mercy. Well, the particular word that Paul uses here has a rich pedigree in the Old Testament. And it communicates this idea of God rescuing his people in accordance with his faithfulness. Now, can you think of a better way to describe what we've seen in Romans so far than that? Through Jesus the Lord, God is rescuing the nations. He's saving them from their rebellion against him, forgiving them, justifying them, giving them the spirit so that we can live lives of obedience to God. And it is on the basis of that mercy that Paul makes his appeal. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that word urge, it it lands right in the middle of a command and encouragement. So it's more than just you know, a suggestion or encouragement as we might think about it. Hey, you should consider this. Think about this. But he stopped short of using the language of command that he uses in other places. It's almost as if Paul is like a father here. 
Or like a coach, he comes along besides us and he says, hey, let's do this. This is the good way to go. This is the way we want to go in light of all that God has done for us. In fact, the way Paul phrases this, it's almost as if God's mercies are speaking through him. Here's what God's mercies are telling you. And what are they urging us to do? To present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And we hear body, we think physical. Paul means the word here, everything we are. Our whole selves. We give it to God as a sacrifice. You see, this picks up with Romans 1. As creatures, we exist for God, we go astray, but God rescues us. And so as Christians, we give ourselves entirely to him. Our lives, everything we have is consecrated to him, given to him as a sacrifice. And I want you to notice quickly the three ways Paul describes this sacrifice. First, it's living. You see, when you give yourself to God, you don't die. Rather, you live. You've never truly lived until you've given yourself to God entirely. Just let go and given yourself entirely to him. And second, Paul says the sacrifice is holy. That's the idea of consecrating, separated, set apart, dedicated to God, dedicated to his service, dedicated to his use, dedicated to his purposes. And finally, the sacrifice is pleasing to him. You see, when we give ourselves to God, that pleases him. In Christ, we please him, and so we yield ourselves to him, and that is pleasing to God. And Paul says that response, that should be motivated by mercy. Mercy drives that response. But as he says at the end of verse 1, this is also our true and proper worship. And what he means there by true and proper, he just means this is what's appropriate for redeemed humans. Now, he doesn't mean that transactionally. Okay, God gave you mercy, now you give him yourself. He gave you this gift, now you owe him back. No, what he's saying is this is how everything works. This is how God intended for his creation to work. This is the blueprint. This is what's proper. This is the way it's supposed to work together. And when we're in Christ, things can finally work that way. In fact, the word worship, it it, it ties together both these ideas of glorifying God, thanking him, praising him, making much of him, and serving God. The, The one word does double duty. Living lives in obedience to him. And that takes us back to being made in his image. Made to represent him in the creation. Made to further his dominion. It's only when we give ourselves to him in total consecration that we can do that. Which is, again, that's when we become truly human. Now, verse 2. Here Paul tells us how to carry it out. He's given us the exhortation. Now, here's how we carry it out. He writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, think back to Romans 1. There is a way of living in this world that does not please God. 
There is a pattern of this world. Paul described it well in the opening chapters of Romans, and that is a pattern that we must now resist. One author writes, we must be ready to challenge those parts where the present age shouts or perhaps whispers seductively that it would be easier and better to do things that way. While the age to come, already begun in Jesus, insists that belonging to the new creation means that we must live this way instead. In other words, Jesus is Lord. And we should be moving towards that lordship, pushing away from the pattern that says to resist his claims and moving more and more in obedience to him. Don't let the old way of life squeeze you into its mold. You've got to resist that and instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've probably heard before the Greek Word translated transformed, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. So a caterpillar enters a cocoon, and several days later a beautiful butterfly emerges. That's the process we're undergoing. God is transforming us, transforming us away from the pattern of the world, transforming us into the image of God, and doing so by renewing our mind. And how do we renew our minds? Paul told us in Romans 6 and 7, by the Spirit. The Spirit convinces us that God's way is best. The law is a guide, but without the Spirit, the law will only stir up rebellion. But the Spirit will convince you, no, God's way is good. The Spirit will give you power to resist those sinful temptations. Power to yield yourself to God. And the Spirit will teach you, teach you through the Word and teach you through His leading. This is what pleases God. And so as a result, we can test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And to test and approve, that's simply to understand and to agree with. You can know And you can do God's will. Just one last time, this is reversing everything we read in Romans 1. Our tendency, go our own way. Disapprove of God's ways. But the renewed mind, it agrees with God's ways. And it has power from the Spirit to comply, to discern what is God's moral direction for my life and to follow it. That's what it means to live as authentic human beings. The way of holiness. The way of consecration. That is the way of true humanity. That is God's will for you. And I love the way this verse just simplifies this concept of knowing and doing God's will. God's will is not mysterious. I think we often think of it in terms of the details And especially trying to discern the future, you know, the the school I should attend or the job I should work or the person I should marry. But this verse speaks more of it in terms of an overarching principle. What is God's moral direction? How are you pursuing holiness? How are you yielding yourself to Jesus as Lord? And here's the thing. When that's the big principle, 
when that's the big idea that guides your whole life, then the smaller decisions become easier to make. Then you can ask yourself, okay, if I go to school here, does that help me advance God's will for my life? Or is it a barrier to being God's will, doing God's will for my life? Or are there two options and I can do God's will in both places? If, if the big goal is to do God's will, then you can make the smaller choices about work and a spouse and school in accordance with what furthers those goals. Are they helping me reach those goals or are they hindering it? Because your place in God's new humanity is to move towards holiness. So what helps you do that? And here's the second big idea from this passage. Not only is God making us holy, God is making us humble. Now in verses 3 through 8, so Paul sets up the renewed mind, consecration. Now he gives us an example of what the renewed mind in action looks like. He starts with verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, if I just read the verse in isolation, it sounds like a general admonition to be humble. We should be humble people. Okay, what's next? Now, Paul is going to set this in the context of our spiritual gifts and our relationships with other Christians. So notice how he sets it up. He speaks here in verse 3 of the faith God has distributed to each of you. That's very similar to the phrase he uses in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So those two phrases interpret one another. They both explain one another. By grace, God has distributed the faith to each of us. I know that's not how we normally speak of the faith, but it's the idea that God has made us participate in this common faith. Then in verse 6, that participation in a common faith, well, it brings with it the possession of various gifts. In between verses 4 and 5, reinforce this. Follow Paul's train of thought. Verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So, on the one hand, there's an emphasis on commonality. We are one body. We belong to one another. But there is also an emphasis on our diversity. Each member does not have the same function. So Paul then goes on to detail some of those different functions. Here's the gift you might have. And he's going to admonish us, he's going to urge us to put our gifts to use for the common good. So let's look at those gifts for a minute, and then we'll tie the whole thing together. First, he says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance 
with your faith. Now, when we talk about prophesying, when I say that word, you might think of predicting the future. And yes, the word is used that way in the New Testament, but it's not always used that way. So, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22 reads, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Notice there, Paul speaks of testing prophecies and rejecting what is evil. Since you can test and reject, I don't think it's always having that future reference. You're not always having to wait to see if the prophecy came true or not. So he's not talking about predictions of the future, but the way people explain God's truth. Listen to what the prophets have to say, Paul says. Listen to what fellow Christians have to say about God's truth. But don't just accept it, test it. And hold on to what is good, And reject what is evil. Not everyone who speaks in God's name is worth hearing. But those who speak what is good do so for our good. And so that matches what Paul says here in Romans 12.6. He tells prophets, prophesy in accordance with your faith. And more formally, this reads, prophesy according to the analogy of faith. In other words, prophesy in accordance with Christian truth. Your prophecy has to match God's overall truth. And if it does, if you have something to say that is in accordance with God's truth, then say it. That is how you help the body. Paul goes on at the beginning of verse 7. He says, if it is serving, then serve. Now, there's a sense in which we should all be servants. I think in five or six verses, Paul will say this. But you've probably met people like this, right? They're just particularly gifted. They're just bent towards serving others. They just love to do things for others for their good. And if that is your gift, put it to use. Next, Paul refers to teachers. God has given to some the ability to teach and explain the faith. They're good at handing on the faith to others. Then verse 8 refers to those who encourage. And that's the same word translated urge in verse 1. One commentary explains this as someone who is good at moving others to action. So they're good at urging Christians to live out the truth of the gospel. Some of us are teachers. We're good at explaining and communicating. Others are gifted in getting people to put that truth into action. And we need both in the body of Christ. Three more. Verse 8 continues. If it is giving, then give generously. Again, we should all share with those who are in need. But again, some people are just so good at giving generously. It's just their default response when they see a need and they just do it straightforwardly without ulterior motives. And if that is your gift, keep it up. Next, Paul says, if it is to lead, do it diligently. Leadership here probably refers to some kind of spiritual care. 
those who are good at providing spiritual direction to others. And finally, Paul says, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And Paul probably has in mind here acts of mercy, you know, visiting the sick, caring for the elderly or disabled, providing for the poor. So there's the gifts. There's a sample of the gifts. Now let me make several observations about all of these gifts. First, Paul imagines that every person in this room, everyone in the body of Christ, has some kind of gift that they can use for the good of others. So maybe you don't think of yourself as very gifted or very worthy. The Spirit has given you the ability to help others in some area. And you may wonder, well, how do I find out what my gift is? Are are there tests and measurements? Those things are there, and they have some value. Here's where I would start, though. Where do you feel naturally inclined after hearing this list? Just what is your default response when you hear these lists? Where do you see yourself already doing things like this? Which of these activities lights a fire in your heart versus shutting you down And making you feel like, oh, that would just be total drudgery. I'd start there in discerning what gifts and abilities God has given. Second, all of these gifts have weaknesses or abuses, kind of a shadow side, that if you have this gift, you have to make sure you avoid the risk associated with the gift. So if you're a prophet, you better be sure you're saying what God wants you to say. So being a prophet doesn't mean I get to go tell everybody what to do and I get to manage their lives based on just whatever thought comes into my mind. You better think long and you better think hard about what you're going to say and test it to make sure you're right. If you're a servant, then serve. But guard against burnout. Guard against letting others use you for their own ends. So serving means you do what is truly good for others. It doesn't mean you facilitate the things that are important to other people. You do what's good for them truly. If you're a teacher, again, make sure you're teaching the truth. If you're an encourager, Make sure you're urging people down the right path. Again, not a path that meets your goals, not a path that serves your ends, but a path that is truly good for the person. If you're a giver, keep giving, but not to the detriment of your immediate responsibilities or obligations that you may have right in front of you. And, of course, don't give just to demonstrate so that others can see, oh, I'm a giver. Give to meet a need. If you lead, do it in the right direction. And if you do acts of mercy, don't forget to take care of yourself. Why? Is that just selfish? No. You have to refresh yourself so you can do acts of mercy long term. Burning out doesn't help anybody in the long run. Here's another thing I want you to see about these gifts. Paul does not, in this passage, tie them to ordained office. We do see them overlap with offices in other parts. But in this passage, Paul is not discussing ordained office. He is talking about the gifts that the body has. So these gifts are not gender or office dependent. 
nor are they placed in any kind of hierarchy. Okay, this gift is really the one that's valuable. These are all the different things that all of God's people may do for the good of one another. And that's what brings us back then to how Paul began this section. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Recognize that being an authentic human is living in relationship with others for their good. And again, where where are we getting this idea of authentic humanity? From Paul's image of the body of Christ. Christ is the image of God, we are told. And also, the last Adam. His body, the church, is being renewed in his image. He is the exact representation of what God is like, and he fulfills the ideal human being. So when we are shaped into his image, we are shaped to be the true humanity that images God. And a part of that existence is existing with and for one another and using our gifts and our abilities to benefit one another. And that's good news. Don't think, oh, my gift is so little, I have nothing to do. No gift is better than the other. We all have a role to play. So I close with this. Ask yourself this week, how can I become more holy? And how can I become more humble? On the holy side, just ask, How can I move towards Jesus' lordship? How can I give myself to God this week as a living sacrifice? It it may be a big step you need to take because maybe God's been telling you that for a little while. Maybe it's just the next little step that's in front of you. Take it. His mercies have rescued you from sin and they're bringing you under his lordship. And then on the humble side, ask yourself, what gifts has God given you? How do you enjoy or find life or ability serving and blessing others? Figuring that out is a part of being humble. Notice I'm not telling you, hey, go home and think really lowly of yourself this week. No, go home and think appropriately of yourself. What gift has God given you? Put it to use and move just a little closer then to someone else this week. In some act of service. Again, maybe there's something you've been hesitant to do, but you are pretty sure, especially after this morning, God wants me to do this, then do it. And and it could be a whole different range of things. That's the beauty of the body. Different gifts, different things. Maybe it's something you could organize in the church, some kind of small group where you can accomplish something for God in the church or in the community. Those are the kinds of things your elders love to hear about it. Maybe it's somewhere at work or somewhere in your neighborhood. What is it that God is gifting you to do? By grace, we have a place in God's new humanity. And he's making us holy and he's making us humble. So let's give him our thanks. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus Christ and his mercies as we considered in the assurance of pardon, the mercies of God that are new every morning. Lord, once again, we would confess to you our sins. Forgive us for where we are not 
holy, where there is something that we are stiff-arming you when you call us to give it to you in consecration and to live under your lordship. Father, forgive us for those things. Show us what they are. Help us to do that this week. Lord, show us our gifts. Inspire, enable, enrich this body to know the abilities they've had for the good of the church, for the good of one another, for the good of mission. Lord, I pray that you would show us those things, and, and by the Spirit, you would enable us to do them. Thank you for all the gifts you've given, all the gifts that are already on display, and all the good things you're doing for us. We would humbly ask that that would continue and increase for your glory and the good of others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.